a lot of the news has been a bit divorced from the visceral reality of this being like this horrible disease which ravages the body. And so our research has shown that people's exposure to that, like the nitty and gritty of this is what a COVID-19 patient actually looks like, that can be really impactful. Welcome to Voices of Victors, a podcast that asks thought-provoking questions, cultivates culturally relevant dialogue, and reveals truths about our shared human experience through discussions with diverse members of the University of Michigan community, ranging from alumni and faculty to students and staff. This podcast is brought to you by the Alumni Association of the University of Michigan. I'm your host, James McRae. I'm a 1997 alum of the University of Michigan, and I've been with the Alumni Association for over 20 years, working in various roles, including student engagement and Camp Michigania. Now, I'm excited to welcome you on this podcast journey. Our theme for season two of Voices of Victors is diversity, equity, inclusion, and justice. From examining the inequities of climate change and paid family leave to discussing authentic allyship, we'll be sharing stories and hearing from experts from the U of M community. In today's episode, we explore the topic of vaccine misinformation and its negative impact on public health, gaining insights and analysis from three experts on this subject. Vaccine misinformation did not start with COVID-19, but issues surrounding this topic have been amplified during the pandemic. As a result, the drive to immunize a majority of Americans has been affected. Complicating the situation are issues of health equity. Not everyone has equal access to accurate information in order to make an informed decision, and it's no wonder people are confused. In today's digital age, we are bombarded with multiple messages, often conflicting across multiple platforms. Gone are the days when someone received health information directly from a doctor or even a single TV clip, newspaper article, or magazine story. With multiple sources of conflicting information, issues of trust come into play, especially for some communities of color who have historically received poor treatment from members of the medical community. In this episode, we'll discuss how healthcare professionals can leverage communication channels to ensure that people receive accurate information about vaccines. We'll also talk about how to work with resources such as community leaders and other methods for supporting people so they can feel confident in their healthcare decisions. In short, what are expert suggestions on helping people locate the most reliable information about vaccines in this age of misinformation? Our first guest is Scott Campbell, Professor of Communication and Media at U of M. Scott's work focuses on the social consequences of mobile, social, and digital media. Specifically, he is interested in the interactions between the self, society, and technology. Welcome, Scott. Thank you for having me. Vaccine information is like everywhere. It seems to come from a variety of media. How can someone like me, the average Joe, figure out what is accurate and what is not out there? Well, I think uh, having a few key things in mind about our media landscape is important. One of the things to keep in mind is that it's important to have a diverse media diet. And so you want to get your media from a number of different sources so that you can check the reliability of the information against the different sources. You want to be aware that media journalists, they're always striving for unbiased truth, but truthfully, it's always going to be framed in some way. You know, there's always a frame, whether it's an economic frame or a social frame, or it might be a political frame or some other kind of frame. And so it's important to be sensitive to the fact that our news is not coming at us, you know, entirely straight in that sense. It's, it's got a frame. And um, finally, I would say that 
people should be sensitive to gatekeeping. So gatekeeping is a traditional way of keeping um, misinformation out of the news. And, you know, for um, as much as they um, are sort of yesterday's news, traditional legacy media outlets do have these institutional gatekeeping processes that tend to keep the misinformation more out than in compared to social media and alternative types of websites where there's a lot less gatekeeping going on. And so are those traditional media sites, um, would you say then those are the trusted ones since that gatekeeping is going on? Like, is that currently going on? Well, I, I wouldn't necessarily encourage people to trust um, any particular news source, but I would say that if they want to trust a news source, that they should be aware of whether there is gatekeeping or not. And if you look at um, our traditional news sources in terms of institutions of, you know, broadcast institutions of NBC, CBS, et cetera, you know, we know that there is a newsroom with gatekeepers. Um, sometimes there are new websites that will pop up, you know, and they look like a news source and it might be a news source, but who knows if there's gatekeeping, right? So kind of pivoting to something that I don't know if it has a lot of gatekeeping. A study said nearly half of American adults say that often or sometimes they're getting their news from social media. How reliable are these sources on social media? The question, I mean, you're asking me how reliable they are. And I, I think the real question is how valid are they? You know, um, actually, both are, are really good questions. How reliable, how valid in terms of reliability? You know, we're talking about consistency of messages. That's what reliability would refer to. And on social media, of course, you're going to get a lot of diverse perspectives and a range of um a range of views. And so um, I would say, though, it, it, you know, validity is important. Accuracy of the information, you know, is it truthful? And like I said, everything, even even the truth with a capital T, once it's articulated and put into words, it does have a frame of reference. Whoever put those words down has a frame of reference. And so, like I said before, sensitivity to the issues of framing and gatekeeping and, you know, what's involved you know, just because something makes it to print, whether it be on a screen or on a page, it doesn't mean that those letters have equal weight, you know, and so you have to think about what's really behind those letters in terms of the institutional processes, um, if you're going to treat it as news. So do you think that because a lot of people are getting their news from these social media outlets um, and more widespread use of these digital platforms, has misinformation increased or has that problem just kind of always been there? That's a good question. Hmm. I think the answer is probably yes and yes, <laughs> if I were to guess. Misinformation is certainly, I would say, an increasing problem right now. The extent to which it is a problem is increasing and it is affecting elections. It's affecting health. It's affecting health policies. Um, you know, people are operating and um, and doing things based on based on momentum and movement um, that comes, I think, more out of sometimes sentiment and affiliation as opposed to truth and valid information. You know, and so some of this is social and some of this is is about information and what's true. And what we have to keep in mind with social media is that it is social. And so when, you know, people are 
using chat applications or group chats or whatever it is to spread messages around, that can be a very powerful way of horizontally getting messages out there in ways that were never possible before. You know, everybody's got a voice now. Um, but like I said, with the gatekeeping thing, you know, we really have to be careful. You know, we don't want to just jump on to the momentum, especially if it's a zero sum game where somebody might get hurt. And that's what we're seeing around the world right now with misinformation. If you do a Google search right now for COVID vaccination, 1.6 billion results come up and that's billions with a B. Where would you recommend people find accurate information? Like I said, you talked about the historical sources with the gatekeepers. Is that where they find it or is that, how do, how do we find that? So I would go, you know, I'm, I'm going to give you my, my lens here, right? Everybody's mm -hmm. got their, their point of reference, as I said, and I'm a professor of media and the news. I teach classes on the news and I encourage my students, if they need a starting point, you know, like your question, where do I, where do I begin? If you really want a starting point, you know, go to the wire services. That's one of the oldest, most traditional news sources that's out there. I'm talking about Reuters, AP, you know, the wire services, they feed other news outlets. I'm not saying that this is truth with the capital T. I'm saying that this is one of the most original sources of today's news that you can find. Um, not necessarily unbiased, but um, certainly a good starting point, I would say. That makes sense. And that's that's consistent with what you've been saying. I just I don't know how many people are actually using those <laughs> with so I've, much I've social actually, media out there. I've actually been doing it lately. It's funny because um, I, I recently started taking my own advice, you know, and, and the news environment with politics and everything. I just wanted to get some I wanted to get something that was just a little different, I guess. And it's pretty easy to type in AP, you know, Associated Press comes up mm -hmm. pretty quick right in the search there. So um that's easy for me. Okay, so let's switch gears a little bit and talk about the COVID-19 vaccine. So it's been available for more than a year now, and none of the safety issues that were initially feared are seem to have come to fruition. Yet, many people are still hesitant to receive that vaccine. Why do you think these rumors persist about it a whole year in? Well... It, they certainly do. Um, they they get syndicated, I guess. You know, that's that that's the word that kind of comes to mind right now. Is it feels like syndication to me because they get recycled. These are not new rumors. Um, you know, the concerns about COVID nineteen and 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 the vaccines, vaccines causing autism. You know, these narratives have been out there for some time. I'm actually writing a paper right now on, um, this might go a little off topic, but um, misinformation around rumors of vampirism, you know, that, vamp that vaccines can lead to vampirism and um, other kinds of, other kinds of things. Anyhow, um, that, that, that 5G, so the rumors, okay, let me unpack this. I'm going to take a step back. I'm writing a paper right okay. now that is looking at the source of, um, of misinformation linking 5G, the new wireless networks that we're rolling out, you know, 5G mobile infrastructure to COVID-19. And they're saying that 4G caused SARS, 3G caused MERS. This is an old story. And we have traced it all the way back to, you know, old original microwave um, networks. And 
the truth is, is that there is, you know, there is questions um, sometimes about science, you know, like electromagnetic frequencies do come into contact with the skin and raise the temperature, but does that lead to, you know, um, a virus? Absolutely not, you know, in that case, but this is something that's very popular around the world. And so if people think that, um, that 5G can lead to COVID-19 or vampirism or Armageddon, which is truly, these are rumors that are being picked up in social media around the world. Um, and in some churches and places are picking them up and spreading them around the world. Um, you know, if people are going to believe that, then, then it's not too difficult for them to believe that vaccines um, have something behind them, you know, and people think that Bill Gates is behind it or all kinds of conspiracies. So then outside of vampirism, what are, what are some of the kind of more dangerous rumors or misinformation that you see out there? Well, like, I'll tell you a little bit more about this paper. Uh, I'm concerned about it because we were talking earlier about syndication, how some of these rumors pop up and now we're, you know, a few years in and they're still not going away necessarily. And they get recycled and syndicated into different areas around the world. And so I'm writing with um, a co-author in Kenya right now, and we're talking about how certain megachurches in Africa have picked up on some of the narrative about 5G and causing, um, you know, causing all kinds of disease or COVID and vampirism and these kinds of things. And it is somewhat hindering development. It causes people to raise questions and it slows down policy. It causes people to protest sometimes. There's vandalism. You know, it really slows things down these conspiracy theories. And, and the truth is, is that there are questions. I mean, there are scientific facts at the heart. You know, we can ask questions about um, electromagnetic frequency and, and how that might affect the body and things like that. But, you know, asking questions at that level and then saying that something therefore is causing, you know, the world to have a pandemic or the world to end or something like that. You know, these are leaps that, um, that people are making over social media. And it's quite unfortunate because, um, because like I said, it's slowing development down in some parts of the world. And that, that slowing development down in parts of the world seems like a major repercussion. Like, what do you think the other repercussions are out there of, of all this misinformation or the types that you were just talking about? Well, I think it erodes trust, you know, uh, trust in, in our communication system and, and in what we believe to be real. You know, uh, we have people that are, um, you know, talking as if they are journalists and acting as if they are journalists and reporting on news, when in fact, I think what we're seeing is, is debate sometimes, you know, that's, that's being couched as news. And so I think that we need to um, maybe step up a little bit in terms of our literacy and our mindfulness, you know, not just, not just literacy, but media mindfulness is something that I've been thinking about lately. So literacy is, you know, you, you know, stuff, you know, that that rumor is not true. You know, that that source is biased in this way, or, you know, something, right. And you apply that knowledge, right. Mindfulness is different. Mindfulness, media mindfulness is where you care. You're paying attention to it. Maybe you don't know, maybe you're in a different country. You don't know anything about the media landscape. And so you don't make judgments. So you don't, come to assumptions and you apply a very mindful lens. And like I said, you diversify your media diet and you take it in 
in a mindful way. I think that we might want to start talking about media mindfulness as much as we talk about media literacy. Let's switch directions again a little bit. Are marginalized communities more susceptible to misinformation? And if so, why? I would say absolutely. I mean, this is the thing that I'm finding in in my work, um, like I said, with 5G and COVID-19 conspiracy theories. Um, we can kind of laugh at them here, and, and sometimes we do, you know, in the United States. Um, but when they travel to places like Africa, um, there are, I guess, I'm hearing from my colleague in Kenya, the leading markets in Africa that are about to implement 5G um, are being hit by these rumors that are rumbling through some of the churches. So it's not just social media. They come through social media, but then they get picked up. You know, they get picked up in other venues and they right. might get kind of reappropriated, you know, and localized in certain ways. Um, and so it's, it's, you know, it's, it's somewhat of a custom almost, you know, and people need to be mindful of this. So would you say then that misinformation kind of relates to the inequity of the vaccine distribution? I think it absolutely would relate to it. Yes. Um, I think we have traditionally seen that there's, you know, a, a gap, a knowledge gap. The media creates knowledge gaps, you know, between people who have access, you know, um, resources and, and people who don't. And, you know, I think in this case, when it comes to misinformation, that when people have, let's say that they have to rely maybe on their, um, you know, their, their family or their friendship networks um, in, in the where they live, um, because they don't have the same kind of free media system that we have here, right, in the United States. And so in a situation like that, they might rely more on WhatsApp, which is what we're seeing in our research um, in other parts of the world. And they really rely on this as a way of being connected and being informed. And the thing is, is that you know, WhatsApp does provide um, a platform where you can reach out to people and establish and maintain those connections and share information and pass along information, pass along videos and pictures of things, you know. Um, but it's, there is no gatekeeping, you know, when it's just the, the chat group from one chat group to another chat group, you know. And, and so the, the technology companies like Facebook have done some things to try to limit this from a technological standpoint. But um, I think that we all need to be more mindful that the, the institutional, you know, the communication flows have changed institutionally. They used to be more vertical, you know, from a mass media system that was institutionalized from top down. And now it's more horizontal, like I was saying before, but it comes with a price, you know, and that price is a lack of gatekeeping. How do you think we build vaccine confidence with the threat of all this misinformation out there? I think that we have to... Um, recognize that there's a number of different things going on here. And I think one of the reasons why you asked me to be on this podcast is because I did a study that looked at two different things. One of the things that I looked at was the media landscape, the social media, specifically social media compared to traditional media sources and what that looks like in terms of misinformation and how that translates into misinformation beliefs. But the other thing I looked at too is different types of thinking styles and how different types of people who have different cognitive approaches to information process information in different ways that can make them more vulnerable to misinformation. 
And so I think this gets back to my point about mindfulness is that, you know, different people, it's not just about the media. It's not whether, you know, this is true or not true necessarily. I mean, that's part of the equation is whether something is right or wrong um, that you're believing in or that you're reading or experiencing. But the other part of it is also cognitively how you process it. And what we found is that some people who rely heavily on their own intuition are much more vulnerable, significantly more vulnerable to believing misinformation when they encounter it. Other people who have like really a need for highly structured cognition in their media environment, um, when they encounter misinformation, they're also more vulnerable. And so um, to answer your question, I think that we have to realize that there are multiple dimensions to this. And we have to try to approach it um, not just from one direction, but you know, in terms of truth, but also in terms of the person who wants to find the truth. So now I've got one more question for you. What can people do to regain the trust in experts and make sense of all the different stories that are available online so that they are actually getting the, the truth with the capital T about the vaccines? Sure. Well, I think that um, at this point, it might be a good idea for people to take a step back and just think about whether or not they um, they they want to follow the advice of science and what science is. You know, take a step back and think about science as a way of knowing. We have other ways of knowing, right? Um, you grow up and your grandma tells you to eat an apple a day, you know, folk wisdom. That's a way of knowing things, right? Um, we follow that or we have other ways of knowing things. Authority figures tell us to do things. You know, the stop sign says to stop. The green says to go. Science is one of the ways of knowing. It's not the only way of knowing. And I think that if we take a step back and look at science, what science does is it tries to show okay, um, through experimentation, you know, this causes that to happen, you know? And if we take a step back and break it down and decide, okay, I believe in science, I believe, you know, in the principles of causation and this causes that to happen um, and think about things through that lens as opposed to maybe the cultural or the social filters where a lot of times we're getting our information like I said, with framing, you know, it comes through a political lens sometimes. Um, and if you can just somehow identify and be mindful that there are, um, there's certainly value-laden questions in science. I'm not saying that science is completely sterile, but I'm just saying that if we recognize science as something that helps us at least generally understand how and why the world works the way it does, then, then I would recommend that people um, be willing to trust, you know, that science gives us some clues. I'm not saying all of the answers, but some clues about how to, um, how to live a healthier life and how to maybe keep the planet around a little bit longer. That makes sense to me. Scott, thank you so much for uh, joining us. You're welcome. This has been a pleasure. Scott Campbell gave us great insights into the digital landscape of information. Our next guest, Elizabeth Michelle, explains health equity and shares why this is important when it comes to vaccines. 
My name is Elizabeth Michelle. I am a graduate of the School of Public Health. I graduated in 2017 with a Master of Public Health in Health Behavioral Health Education. My work really, I, I like to say that I operate at the intersection of community voice innovation and a multidisciplinary lens to address health equity. Um, that's looked like a lot of different things um, across my career so far, um, but currently I am the health equity specialist at Hartford Healthcare, which is an integrated health system in Connecticut. What equitable vaccine information looks like, I actually want to uh, take this opportunity to define what health equity is. Um, and health equity is about ensuring that everyone has a fair and a just opportunity to be as healthy as possible. And that means depending on the group, depending where their health outcomes are, we're providing the resources that that particular group needs to get to that fair and just opportunity for a great health outcome. When it comes to information, information plays a, a significant role in how people get to that great health outcome, but it's not the only factor. But when we look at uh, vaccine information in particular, if I'm looking at vaccine information and I'm saying, how do I apply an equitable lens or a lens of health equity to this information? I'm thinking about what does each individual group need in order to have the information they need to make the decisions that they need to make. Um, and so what this can look like is thinking about language, thinking about um, literacy levels, thinking about the, the channel, the content, that people are receiving their information. So I can receive information and not do anything with it. That's not helpful information. If I'm thinking about how do I communicate with a group of people, I need to understand where do they get their information that they act on? Who do they trust? What are the channels um, and the types of content that really resonate with them? So COVID-19 vaccine information using an equity lens says, I'm thinking about the language that this is showing up in, whether it's Spanish, English, um, or a different language. I'm thinking about uh, individuals who may have low vision or who have, are hard of hearing um, and who we just need to use different ways of accessing language for folks. Also thinking about literacy levels. Doesn't matter if you have a PhD or a high school level education. A lot of times this scientific or medical information is hard to understand. Think about the last time you read the terms and conditions of your software. Like it's hard to really understand what that means. So if we are wanting to make sure that information is accessible and understandable, we have to think about the literacy levels so that it's plain language and simple for people to understand. Then also thinking about the timing, how often is, is this messaging going out? And lastly, the trusted nature. It doesn't, if, if I don't trust the, the person who is giving the information or the avenue where that information is coming from, then I'm not going to do anything with that information. So I, I, would, I would push back on the language of equitable vaccine information and say instead, how do we provide that uh, information in a way that is equitable and that allows for people to get to that outcome of health equity. So an example of what, what this looks like. Uh, in our age, it's so easy to say, we're just going to create a video or uh, put some information on a website for people to come to the website and get that information. But we have to think about folks who 
are not necessarily in front of their computers all the time. Maybe they work at a job where they're, it's very hands-on. They're not in front of a computer. And by the time they get home, they're not trying to be on a computer to get information. So we're thinking about folks who are not necessarily sitting in front of computers. We have to think about folks who maybe they get their information from the radio um, or uh, their, their, information is coming from a trusted person, like they trust their neighbor very closely. And so they might hear the radio, but what the information that they're acting on is from that neighbor. So when we're thinking about how do we provide information, we have to use all these different avenues, whether it's putting up a flyer in the grocery store or um, putting a, putting an ad on radio, different radio stations, um, using the voices that folks listen to often, whether it's a DJ or um, their local community leader. We can think also about um, using even things like WhatsApp. I have received a lot of videos about COVID-19 through WhatsApp. So how do we leverage the channels that people are using, getting their information from, to make sure that it's reaching a wider audience of folks and not just a channel that we're using to be effective, like a web page. Rounding out our panel of experts is Abram Wagner, who will discuss his recent study on vaccine ambivalence and how to encourage fence sitters and others to get the vaccine. Abram graduated from U of M in 2012 with a Master of Public Health and in 2015 with a PhD, both in epidemiology. He is currently a research assistant professor in epidemiology in U of M's School of Public Health. His research interests center on vaccine hesitancy and the epidemiology of vaccine-preventable diseases. Welcome, Abram. My pleasure. What do you think the best strategies to employ in generating trust in vaccine amongst those who are hesitant about it? So this is a great question. What do we do with people who are vaccine hesitant and how do we inculcate trust? Um, but I want to back up a moment and just talk about what do we mean by vaccine hesitancy because there's a broad spectrum here. So the WHO put together this definition, which is vaccine hesitancy refers to when you delay or you refuse a vaccine despite it being available. Because of course, if you know a vaccine isn't available, it's not at the clinic, that's, that's not really vaccine hesitancy consideration. But really this, this definition is quite broad and it encompasses a lot of different things. You know, people might refuse a vaccine because they just don't think that they have any risk for it. And you see this a lot for parents might be refusing a birth dose of hepatitis B because, you know, Really, the only reason that you can get hepatitis B as a newborn is if one of the parents had hepatitis B, and if they were both tested and they're negative, then do you really need a hepatitis B birth dose? Uh, but that would be considered vaccine hesitant under this definition. Uh, there could be people, though, who are strongly, like they don't want any injections near their kid. Uh, that would also be considered vaccine hesitant. And those seem to be very, you know, opposite ends of the spectrum. And so I do want to emphasize that it's it's okay for people to be wondering about vaccines. It's okay for people to be questioning, you know, what are they injecting themselves or what are they injecting their child with? I think those are very rational questions. Those are, there's a good discussions to be having with your doctor, with your pediatrician, um, even with people around you. So I don't want to be dismissive of that 
at all. Uh, but clearly our communication strategies have to vary based on what people's concerns are. Because if somebody is strongly anti-vaccine, then what you're able to discuss with them as a physician or as a vaccine provider would probably be very different than somebody who might be what I would consider kind of like a fence sitter, you know, somebody who, you know, might want to get a vaccine, might not want to get a vaccine. Uh, so there's there's clearly different types of, of communications that you can have there. And I think what we're seeing in the public nowadays is that there are people who probably will never get a vaccine, will never get a COVID-19 vaccine. Um, you know, I, I, I think there's kind of this core 15 to 20% of the population, which is just seems to be very against the COVID-19 vaccine. When we're thinking about pediatric vaccines, that number seems to be about, a, a lot less, uh, less than three, less than 2% of the population will refuse all vaccines for their kids. So this is really a small proportion of the population. Um, so I guess from a public health perspective, I'm more interested in like, what can we do to inculcate trust in communicate in communities, what can we do to increase trust in um, larger populations and try to minimize this number from creeping upward? So you mentioned fence sitters. Uh, you completed a study focused on fence sitters recently, those people who are ambivalent about the vaccines but can still be persuaded. Your findings show that community leaders can help convince those fence sitters. What kind of community leaders are you talking about? So who the messengers are, who's going to be talking about vaccines and who's going to be promoting vaccines to these, these fence sitters probably varies based on what people are hesitant about and who they are in the community. But I would say, you know, off the top of my head from my own research, from what I've um, read other people's uh, research, this would be religious leaders thinking about pastors, rabbis, imams. Um, this could also be... Uh, other community leaders, this could be people who work in nonprofits in your area. And one thing that we've noticed as scientists, as we've been studying misinformation and vaccine hesitancy is oftentimes we wish that we could go into a community and promote the vaccine in that community, but we just don't have a connection to that community. So for instance, Detroit has had pretty low vaccine rates uh, even before the pandemic, but um, it's been noticed COVID-19 vaccination has had a slower rollout there than in other places. But just like going into Detroit and saying, oh, you should get a vaccine, you should get a vaccine, these are the reasons why, that has less utility. That's not as effective as if there was like a homegrown person in Detroit or somebody who had an established relationship with Detroit. If that kind of person would be saying that message, they'd be much more effective. So really, you know, this is community specific and uh, different groups might have different leaders who'd be more efficacious at uh, spreading positive messages about vaccines. So talking about those community leaders, uh, those religious leaders, all those people who you mentioned, what type of information can they share and how can they share it to actually persuade more people to get vaccinated? So one thing that I've learned as an epidemiologist relatively recently, although I think psychologists in this area would have known this for a very long time, is that you can't just shout facts at people and expect them to change their behaviors. You can't say, oh, this vaccine is 95% is effective. There's no side effects or very little side effects. So come get it. Uh, that's not that's not very useful uh and you know maybe that will persuade a few people but that's that's not going to be uh hugely impactful on a population level so there's a few things one is just normalizing it you know the more that people know that 
that the people around them, the people in their community are getting vaccinated, that people like them are getting vaccinated, the people that they look up to are getting vaccinated, the more likely that they'll want to get the vaccine themselves. So we did see this with COVID-19 that people on social media were posting a lot of um, images of themselves getting vaccinated. I think that was probably very important because what we did see last year is there was a substantial decline in vaccine re rejection from maybe around over a third of people, like 35% of people rejecting it early in the year, like January 2021, whereas by the summer, it was down to about 20% or lower. And I think a lot of that was just the norm surrounding, like, I know people around me got get vaccinated. And so I think community leaders can be a focal point of just normalizing that you got a vaccine. Uh, so I think that can be really helpful. Another source of um, information or persuasion strategy could be talking talking about who are you protecting? Because one thing that we've noticed um, with, with COVID-19 is that a lot of people just are not very concerned about protecting themselves if they just don't think this is a very serious disease. But I think people across the political spectrum, you know, will understand that older individuals are more high at, or, or, or at higher risk of um, severe outcomes from COVID-19. So thinking about like, who are you protecting? And it's not just, I'm protecting older people because I think that message doesn't resonate with a lot of Americans, but are you protecting your grandma? Are you protecting your favorite uncle? Are you protecting your child's teacher by getting vaccinated? I think those kind of messages can be really important, but it, the specificity of it matters. So it's not just I'm protecting everybody. It's, it's I'm protecting this one person in my life who I really value and I don't want them to be sick. So I, I think the specificity of that, but then also just normalizing that you're getting vaccinations um, could be important. So during your study, did you find any major concerns that people who were hesitant had? Like, did you see any common threads about what those people were concerned with about getting a vaccine? The concerns that people have are the pace of the development. They just are concerned this vaccine was developed really rapidly and accordingly is potentially not very safe. Uh, so I think the, the safety issue there um, kind of coincides with what the, the concerns about the speed of vaccine development this is where I think the normalization and seeing other people around you get vaccinated was really, really helpful because, um, you know, what we saw for these like fence sitter, these people who had some, some of these concerns about vaccine safety is that they were a bit slower to get the vaccine, but a lot of them ended up, and you know, the vast majority of them ended up getting the COVID-19 vaccine at the end of our study period. But it just took a few more months compared to, you know, people who were very pro-vaccine. And so I think going forward, when we're thinking about how to deal with um, misinformation during pandemic, or even just, you know, what do people think about getting a vaccines? Clearly, there are a number of different ways of preventing infectious diseases. And I think vaccines are key, but we have other things in our arsenal, like social distancing, working from home, uh, masking. Um, not all of those can be applied to everyone, but, you know, masking, I think, pretty universally can be. So what I would like to see is if, if there are people who are a bit concerned about vaccines, and I, I, I want to say that that's understandable, what are some things that they can do instead to protect themselves and protect other people around them? 
I think that'll be uh, something that we should potentially promote um, in future pandemics is kind of like risk mitigation on a larger scale and not just solely focused on vaccines. Changing directions a little bit here. Do you see a pattern in vaccine hesitancy? Um, A pattern along with uh, news sources that people actually get their information from? Yeah, so how news relates to vaccine hesitancy is really interesting because news is is something modifiable, like we could change people's exposures there. One thing though that I'll first mention about news is, because I've, I've studied a bit about people's news exposures and their vaccine decisions, is that there's a high degree of correlation on what people are seeing in the news in regards to COVID-19 vaccine cases or COVID-19 cases and their perceptions of the vaccine. So if you are seeing like a a patient, if you saw somebody in the news who was suffering from COVID-19, our research has shown that you're more likely to want to get the vaccine yourself. I think that's important because uh, at least when I turn on the news a lot um, and over the past year, it's it's been a lot of charts, like epi curves of this is a huge outbreak of COVID-19. There are people, you know, going back and forth, uh, talking about what they think about vaccines or about masks or things like that. But um, we haven't seen a lot of the COVID-19 cases. Uh, early on in the pandemic, there was some reporting about that, but I think a lot of the news has been a bit divorced from the visceral reality of this being like this horrible disease, which ravages the body. And so our research has shown that people's exposure to that, like the nitty and gritty of this is what a COVID-19 patient actually looks like, that can be really impactful. Uh, So I I, I certainly think that that's um, kind of a point that I like to talk to journalists about when they are doing their COVID-19 reporting. But, you know, the the, um, patterns that I've been seeing about with vaccine hesitancy are largely in line with what other researchers have found um, in that there are probably two large groups of individuals who are more vaccine hesitant than the the average member of the population. And that would be um, conservative white individuals, and then also the black population as a whole. And I think separating those out might be a bit important, especially since maybe their news sources are a bit different. But if we focus on the um, the, the conservative white population, the interesting thing there is that there's there's also large vaccination gradients by education and by income status. So like a high income, highly educated, conservative white American will actually have like pretty high rates of vaccination. So really the what's happening is in the um, you know, it's in the lower income individuals. And, you know, is that due to uh, susceptibility to certain misinformation? Is that due to kind of like a difference in their, um, you know, what kind of media they're being exposed to, like traditional media sources versus not, um, like what's circulating on social media? Um, That's all very interesting. And I I suppose I'll have to uh, poke around with it in a future research study. So I hate to say this, out loud, but if we do enter another pandemic in the future, 
What are some of the major lessons that we could take away from your study? So there's one statistic that I like to bring up in one of my classes, which is how often does an emerging infectious disease arise in the world? And I think people are like, oh, like once every 10 years or like once every 20 years, maybe, but there's two every year. So there's, there's a lot of emerging infectious diseases out there. And I think we've been lucky in the past where they've been like locally tamped down or just the, the virus or the bacteria just doesn't really spread very um, efficiently within a human population. But certainly we will get other outbreaks of coronaviruses, of other respiratory infections, um, you know, another influenza pandemic, um, an antigen shift with influenza. So all of these things are likely to happen. So what have we learned? One is that I, I want to take a positive spin on this. We were able to develop a vaccine really quickly. So I think the mRNA platform for developing vaccines is really key to this. Um, but I do think like a global rollout would in, in you know, like a very fast global rollout instead of having countries jockeying to like hoard as many vaccines as possible. I think that'll be key to trying to stamp down on any um, new variants that arise with the future pandemic. So I do want to, you know, first off say that beyond the vaccine hesitancy issue, that's, that's important. Uh, but I think we need to be starting now to develop relationships within communities uh, because again, like parachuting in and shouting about how good a vaccine is, that's not going to work as well as if we have like these longstanding relationships with communities and, you know, not that like our, our incentive structure within academia, within grants isn't necessarily tailored towards that, but I'm, I'm hoping we can get there. So I, I would say right now, what we need to do is we need to develop those relationships and we need to be learning from each other. We need to be including, you know, these people from these communities into our, um, our systems for promoting vaccines and for developing vaccines. Dr. Wagner, thank you so much for joining us and thank you for your time today. Thank you. Thank you. I want to thank all of our guests today, Scott Campbell, Elizabeth Michelle, and Abram Wagner, who have helped us navigate the complex issue of vaccine misinformation. I also want to thank our listeners for tuning in. University of Michigan alumni and faculty are making a difference all over the world, and we want to continue telling their stories. Are you a member of the Alumni Association? If you haven't already, we invite you to join. Visit the website to stay connected, alumni.umich.edu. Also, don't forget to give this podcast a rating or review and hit the subscribe button so you don't miss the next episode. Until next time, go blue.